economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant of the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. And finally, Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. All right. Well, today we thought we'd talk about institutions and the apparent research that's come out on declining trust in institutions. So institutions, listeners, I had one textbook that I like the definition it gave is basically man-made constraints on human behavior. It's a nice, real generic definition, because when you say the word institution, you might think of, well, the Ottawa University is an institution, uh, the government's an institution. Sometimes it might relate to a physical place, but it doesn't have to. So man-made constraints on human behavior as opposed to like a natural disaster, a tornado or something would not be an institution. We don't have, it's not a man-made constraint. You could think of maybe it being a God-made constraint of some sort, but it wouldn't fall into the definition of what we consider an institution. And so, Peter, uh, you've done some research here or found some findings you want to share? Yeah, well, the thing that inspired me to think about institutions was the new Gallup poll that came out and NPR, apparently Russ told me, just did a, a story on this the other night. And the Gallup poll found that U.S. church membership fell below the majority for the first time in our history. And so people who describe themselves as affiliated with the church are now 47% of Americans. The other 53% do not describe themselves that way. And that caused me to think about a previous study or a couple previous studies that I had seen, one by Pew Research, but another one by the Springtide Research Institute. Both of these show that, especially among younger generations, millennials, Gen Z, Springtide specifically focuses on people before they're adults and so teenagers right now. What they find is almost across the board, younger people have lower trust in institutions. And so that's political institutions, but it's also religious institutions, businesses, all sorts of things in our society that are basically collections of these man-made constraints like Russ talked about, any sort of formal institution. People tend to have less trust in especially younger people with very few exceptions. Yeah, I think it's important to think that because it's man-made constraints, it's a collection of people, a lot of kind of collective action, if you will, of when we think of a, a church, for instance, it's made up of people playing various roles, and apparently people are getting turned off by that, and that uh, partly due to American individualism, rugged individualism, or is it due to other things? Has the other ways we communicate with each other, maybe via Facebook, internet, is that, has that played a role? I don't know if there's been any research that direction, but yeah, things are changing. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, I actually don't think it's much to do with rugged individualism. And the reason that I don't think that's probably the case is the people who are ages 50 and above tend to have higher trust, across, again, across the board institutions. So police officers, religious leaders, military, business leaders, even school systems. If you're above 50, you tend to have more trust. And I tend to think of that generation of being 50 and older as like being more individualistic than our generation. Maybe that's wrong, but I see people in my generation and younger having more of sort of a collectivist mindset about things. Whereas I, th I tend to think people who are 
older, grew up in a time where individualism was something that was praised in the, in the U.S. Now, I could be wrong about that, but that's my, my sort of thought on it, my take. I think that we need to talk about two different kinds of institutions, or at least two different kinds of institutions, because I think they all get glommed together in this. And I actually think that the trust that is given to one institution might be, you know, there might, it might be a zero sum game between these institutions mm. rather than trust in institutions decreasing over the board. And so mm. interesting hypothesis. So I think that it's very clear that trusting government and governmental institutions has gone down, right? And that's all the data shows that. And I think the data that you're referencing, Peter, is from 2018 or 2019. Correct. Okay. And I would expect that the trust in government has not skyrocketed since then. <laughs> Given the disastrous and incoherent response of the government to things like the, you know, the COVID-19 <laughs> debacle, I would expect that trust is still very low. And in fact, I, I think I've seen data that supports that. But the government is a different kind of institution than something like churches are. And one of the reasons that the government is a different kind of institution than something like the church is, is because the government is, you know, by its nature in this two-party state kind of divided. And to the extent that you trust what one party is saying, you necessarily disbelieve a lot of what the other party is saying <laughs> when the two parties are more divided and they have been more divided since the late 90s. Yeah. There's a lot of data showing that's the case. So if government keeps ping-ponging between two parties and these two parties are increasingly saying different things, you would definitely expect people, even independently of the government's failure to deliver on whatever they say they're doing, you would increasingly suspect that more people would distrust that institution. And I think that's in contrast to something like a church. And the point of a church is that, you know, if you talk about man-made constraints, those constraints largely are historical and those constraints largely stay the same through time. They're tradition-based rather than based on, you know, whatever the popular sentiment is at the moment. So I think distinguishing between institutions that are tradition-based and institutions that are politically based is important. And maybe during the second half, I would like to argue for the claim that a decrease in trust in political institutions opens the door for a rise in trust in tradition-based institutions. And I would actually expect to see that going forward because I don't think that societies can survive without social trust. And given that I think political institutions have lost trust and lost trust because they have performed terribly, that people will be looking to place their trust elsewhere. And I think uh, things like political institutions can take advantage of that. I suppose the alternative, I agree with your claim that societies with no trust anywhere don't tend to last over time. And so if our society tends to last over time, I agree with you that we there's probably room for these traditional institutions to get more trust. But isn't the alternative that we just have a society that falls apart? Yes. Okay. Yeah, um, there's definitely that. I mean, back to Adam Smith, the trust factor was always part of a successful capitalist system of a market-based system. Having that trust factor, whether we call it social trust or institutions that allow exchange that we don't have to know intimately somebody, we can have a trust factor through the market and that makes markets operate faster. Example is how transaction costs go up if we lose trust. So we have to bring in attorneys to write 
all the language of covering all the bases if somebody doesn't do something. Whereas back in the old days, it was a handshake and we had trust with each other, right? And so you can actually do more transactions and operate more efficiently when there's a higher level of trust. And so that was recognized very early on with the birth of capitalist thoughts or more formally anyway with Adam Smith. That brings another interesting question. So we've sort of got this dichotomy set up of government institutions and tradition-based institutions. There's a few other type of experts on this list. First, business leaders. And so I'm curious where business institutions fit into your framework, Justin, or if it's a totally different thing in the framework. But also there's two others that are in there, which show sort of an interesting pattern in 2018 that maybe is worth talking about. That's scientists and journalists. And actually, you can put college university professors in there. And all three of those groups are the three standouts of groups that are more trusted by younger generations than they are. Older How can generations. journalists go up? So this, the data is from, the data's from 2018. Prior to the coronavirus. True. You're right. Oh, okay. Is... Yeah, you're right. So that would be interesting to get the update maybe later. Okay. Yeah. It was surprising to me as well, to be honest with you. Even in 2018, it was surprising to me. Yeah. But those are the three institutions. So I'm curious where institutions like this, the scientific establishment, the journalist establishment, business establishments, universities, where those fit into this framework and where you see them being? Yeah. So I said there's, there's more than, sure. uh, you know, it's not just a dichotomy. And it, I like to think of it more along the spectrum, but I do think that political parties are way on one end of the spectrum mm-hmm. and things like religious institutions are way on the other. And these other institutions are somewhere in between. I think okay. academia is closer to a and at least historically was closer to a religious institution. Yeah, I, th- uh, whereas, I agree with that. You know, uh, journalists being far closer to the political institution, right? And then uh, business leaders being somewhere in between there. Okay. Yeah, I, Ludwig von Mises, an economist, has a great point. He says that higher education specifically is by necessity a conservative institution. And he doesn't mean politically conservative there. He means that the principles that run academia are like, established truths. There is a current literature that says something, a scientific literature that says something about any sort of topic. And the academic field by necessity is basically building off of old foundations. It's very rare that you'll revolutionize an academic science. And so I I agree that the academic world tends to be based on tradition. It's based on what the people before you said, you know, there's a whole section in every academic paper that's citing everyone else before you. You know, what is this but an Apostles' Creed of a sort? Yeah, I think it's worthwhile bringing up for our listeners, too, when we bring up science, just to mention the scientific method, what that means, that this truth that you're speaking about, you have some sort of hypothesis about the way that you think the world works, you gather data, and you test it to see if the world does actually work that way. And that evidence is then verifiable and transparent to other researchers that can continue to test that truth. And so over the course of 100, 200 years, or much further when you go back to Europe, but here in the United States, the university system should be always pushing and testing those things so that there's a little bit more of a bedrock. And that's what science is supposed to be. I'm not sure where science (laughs) is in some places related to COVID because, and I don't think people always understand that there might be one finding that comes out with this evidence and another one with this and, and why that's the case. And it's because you can collect different data, different circumstances. There's a lot of unknowns with science, I guess is my point that I don't think is always appreciated by the general public. If it comes out of science, it's the truth. Well, it's likely the truth. It's maybe with 95% confidence it's the truth, but there is no 100% known things. We just keep moving forward trying to test that. So I thought that was worth bringing up 
for, for what it's worth for our listeners who might not be in academia and we hear the word science thrown around, the scientific method is definitely a core component of that. I wanted to bring up voluntary versus non-voluntary. Unless, Justin, I, you sounded like you had something to jump in, but maybe not. I have a long digression on what science is that might not. Oh, well, I I'd say go for it since well, I brought it up. Yeah. So I think we need to distinguish between like empirical sciences and other kinds of sciences, because I do think that there are things that we can know 100%. And that's things that we can reason about like deductively. But there are a lot of sciences, like the physical sciences, where we do do that exact same thing that you're talking about. So I, I just want to wanted to say that not all of academia yeah. is empirical yeah. in that way. Yeah. Some of it is deductive, right? And those deductive things we can be certain about provided our logic is airtight. And whether or not a given field is a deductive field or an empirical field or something else like an <laughs> interpretive field. Right. Drama yeah. or, I mean, there's plenty of other disciplines that go outside yeah, the, the English department of doesn't do any of those things. Right. right? Exactly. Uh, yeah. And, and not that they should, we're not even no, saying we wouldn't them want them to. exactly. They're, they're engaged in a different enterprise. Yeah. So yeah, I just wanted to say that the university and academia itself is wider than the kinds of debates that we have with regard to whether the COVID data is correct. Mm-hmm. And right. I would agree with you 100% that, you know, especially when, when you hear people, and when I hear this, it's mostly journalists saying things like, <laughs> you know, well, the data says X and yeah. therefore X. They, well, I never like to cast aspersions on an entire profession, but here we go. A lot of it, <laughs> a lot of it just seems uh, statistically illiterate. Right, right. Not only that they are taking a study as confirmation that they know something 100%, which as you pointed out, even if, they, even if they're right, that's not true. Uh, they usually misinterpret the data that they're reporting. Yeah. And, and then confirmation bias. They only look for the findings that support the way that they want, what they want to write about or what, what headline they want to give. So, yeah, but, but if the scientific or non-scientific aside, you know, any field deductive or otherwise too, is going to have this sort of conservative, again, not politically, but the conservative meaning that just focusing on what's been established before a field, you know, if you read a philosophy paper, it's probably going to, and Justin can correct me if I'm wrong, probably going to say, previous philosophers and what they've said, even if it's talking about things like deduction rather than the scientific method. And I think that lends itself to, by the way, universities oftentimes, and this is kind of a different topic, but maybe important, universities often being replacements for religion to a certain extent. To use an extreme example, I think the Red Guard in China, which was the student communist, you know, basically paramilitary organization, which was behind a lot of the book burning during the Maoist revolution. I mean, to me that like, you know, it screams itself as a religious movement more than anything. So I think the, that Justin's right is basically what I'm trying to say is that I really do think that academia looks a lot like a religious institution. What's interesting about the Red Guard though, is they hated the pro- university professors just as much, right? So it's not like they took it over and said like, we are the, you know, took it over and just continued the university with right. them in charge, right? They took it over and destroyed it. Right. So this looks like about a good time for a break. And as a cliffhanger, I'm interested in getting my colleagues view here on the voluntary versus non-voluntary nature of some of these institutions where with religion, we can kind of come and go as we please. With the government, we can't come and go as we please with some of the things that the government is involved with is very much a non-voluntary measures. And here we have our president, Biden, who apparently thinks that the government is not doing enough given the plans that are laid out. So 
I'm interested to kind of lead things in that direction. We'll be back in just a bit. By 2030, the Gordon Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The institution will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to students' experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. At Ottawa here at, with the Gordon Institute, we're developing a PPE league, which is a college student event where students will engage in on ideas of classical liberalism and free enterprise and market. We have our first uh, event coming up here with against Emporia State University. And so if you have a student somebody else that's interested in ideas like that and want to push the envelope on the thinking that can make life better, come to Ottawa and talk to Justin, Peter, or Russ today. Don't forget to check our show notes for the episode at podcast.123povertysucks.org. All right, so we left with a little cliffhanger here on just thinking about the non-voluntary nature of government versus the volunteer. So some institutions, businesses, for instance, we can choose to patronize that business or not, go to that church or a different church, but we're kind of stuck with government. And I think that's a fundamentally important thing here as part of the conversation. Peter, what do you think? I have maybe some disagreement, maybe some agreement. I think that it's morally important, maybe, that government is something that we can't walk away from. And so that makes it different in kind from something like religion that maybe you, at least in today's world, that you can walk away from. But I think in terms of affecting people's action and maybe why like young people wouldn't see these things as very different from each other, is I actually don't think it's a difference in kinds in how it affects our action just degree. And what I mean is that we could imagine a world where it's more costly for you to walk away from your religion than it is to walk away from your government. And so maybe the things that you would lose by leaving your religion, that's the people in it, you know, your, your friends, your worldview, things like that are more valuable to you than, you know, whatever time you would have in jail if you tried to walk away from a government law or something like that. And so uh, I definitely see this as, you know, in, an important distinction, especially in the moral realm, but it seems to me to be just a difference in temperature when it comes to how it affects our actions in our day-to-day life. You can imagine like a cult fully voluntary, but certainly some people have a very high cost of leaving a cult. And I think that does affect their action just as much as a government or something like that. Yeah. So I too have some disagreement with, well, I don't think that the voluntary versus involuntary distinction helps us really explain why states in particular are losing their trust. I again think it's this responsiveness that states, especially democratic political states, being governed by two parties that are wildly at odds with each other. I think their source of information and what they're pushing is much different than a historically based organization like the church or even like academia, which I mean, the PhD process is essentially modeled on delaying on hands, you know, to grant priesthood, right? It's you know, you have your fat, your dissertation advisor who himself has a dissertation advisor and it goes all the way back to, you know, whoever, right? Just to exactly like the, the priesthood should. So I think that this, you know, conservative versus like forward looking or responsive to like, the current mood distinction is something that explains the lack of trust more 
and that when people find out that you know the state has failed at delivering what they promised to deliver they can fall back on some on an institution that has existed for much longer and has a better track record of structuring society or or maybe even just structuring your life in a society i think it's kind of interesting that the you know, education, the universities were up, but really universities, I, I, don't, I don't know what the data is on this, but I would suspect more than half are state institutions. You think about the big state colleges versus little old Ottawa that has, well, depending on how you're counting heads, let's say 4,000 with all of our various campuses and modalities, but still uh, pale in comparison to the, to the state funded ones. So you've got a government institution more or less, or certainly even us as a private nonprofit university, we are heavily influenced by governmental decisions because of student loans, for instance, and the availability of that can drive some of the decision-making at even private universities. So my, my point with that is that we've got universities on the rise with trust, but political institutions, I don't remember how was, how was it worded, Peter, with the political institutions or politicians or it is talking about elected officials trust is down and also other political institutions like police institutions trust is down and so i wonder so that could be like are we thinking the democratic process is failing us that majority rule doesn't quite get us the results is that what we're lacking trust in sounds like it's the particular politicians but Back to my Biden comment, is that because we don't think the politicians are doing enough? And so if he's stepping to the plate with doing a lot of stuff. Uh, it just seems a little fuzzy at that point. And I hope that it is what Justin's saying. I love, I love that thought, of course, of, and, I, and I believe it to be true that as these policies turn out to be not so hot for the United States, which the track record of history is, is pretty clear that these types of policies do not lead to greater flourishing that will move more towards private institutions or there'll be this substitution of trust factor that you're bringing up, so. Well, I think even institutions that are nominally democratic, like the DNC, right? You have seen a lot of, for instance, young progressive faith in the DNC, in the DNC get shaken by the way that they absolutely change their rules to screw over Bernie, right? <laughs> yeah. And. So I, th I think that's one of the ways in which trust is being lost. Especially 2018 when that poll was taken. Yeah. And I mean, you saw this on the right too with Trump, right? Except Trump managed to beat the insiders, whereas Bernie didn't, right? right? But then Trump, of course, made a lot of promises that he didn't deliver on to his base, right? So he delivered some though too, I guess we... I wouldn't want to say he didn't deliver anything. But. Okay, so Trump's signature policy, right? Agree with it or disagree with it. His signature policy was we are going to build the wall and we are going to stop illegal immigration. And that, that has to be counted as a failure. The build the wall part, for sure. But lately, once Biden came in, we have this border problem going on currently. So I'm not sure he had some, I think he made some progress at slowing down border. Are there currently more people or less people? I mean, look, I, I, you don't have to agree with any policy, right? Just on the basis of it, it seems like that problem, uh, however you want to say it should be solved, didn't get solved. 
Now, Biden, of course, yeah, uh, compared to the, the way it was problem, portrayed right? at the beginning of the campaign. Yeah, I totally um, agree. Yeah. So if you are part of any of these bases and you actually believe the literal words that are coming out of your politician's mouth, you have to be start getting disillusioned because for the past four, you know, however many presidents, the literal number one campaign promises always get violated. I'm going to close Guantanamo Bay and I'm going to uh, bring back habeas yeah. corpus. Uh, I'm going to step, that's Barack Obama. The U.S. is going to stop being the policeman of the world. That's George W. Bush. Look. Yeah, all of them down the line. Yeah. No, and and I, I think that's actually a positive reflection of our institution that we can't, we don't have a leader step into the presidency and get stuff turned up, turn the apple cart upside down. So it's, I think, a positive thing that both the left and the right have failed in many ways. It's a little but, scary now with the control situation that the Biden regime has. Can I contrast that a little bit with like a with academia? Because I think what you were saying is something like, well, academia is kind of incestuous with the government. So yeah. why would they trust ac- academics more? Yeah. And it's that if you do that kind of non-performance as an academic, as an individual academic, you say you're going to do something and then you just don't do it. Or you flip, you completely change your mind in public view over and over. You suffer professionally. Mm-hmm. And the, our political institutions are just set up so that that's not the case with our political institutions. Yeah, it's more so, transient. Yeah. And so even though there is this incestuous relationship between academia and politics, people have the idea, and they probably overestimate this, right, that, that academics are more consistent and more independent than politicians. They probably think they're more consistent and more independent than they actually are. And the consumer does have some shopping around to do too, I might add, that with education, they can go to one state school is going to look different than another state school. You know, certainly one private university is an alternative to a state. So there's some shopping around. It's almost like the federalist idea that you can vote with your feet and do your own research. So you have more options. But I would say the lowest trusted institution amongst the youngest generation, uh, ages 18 to 29, according to this Pew poll, is business leaders. That is the lowest trusted where there's the most shopping around. My explanation for this this trust is actually a, a lot different than dealing with politics specifically. And actually, you know, I think it's interesting that you talked about you just go down the line with the politicians. Yeah, you can just go down the line. You can go to Reagan and Reagan said he was going to make government smaller and Reagan exponentially increases government spending. And actually, you can carry this back, I think, throughout history to presidents probably in the early 1900s. So what's really interesting is I don't think that politicians have gotten any better or worse at carrying out their promises. I don't think there's any reason for this uh, decrease in trust that's rooted in reality. I think the decrease in the trust is the result of kind of a, a success of what is sometimes referred to as critical theory in society. And so critical theory that there's, you know, people have different definitions and there's squabbles and fights about this, but you can basically think of it as an approach to looking at the world that any sort of prevailing institution that's very popular and successful is the result of some trouncing on other people. That critical theory, the goal is to look at these things with a critical lens. That's why it's called critical theory. And so religious institutions, government institutions, you know, economic institutions and environments. And so I think that this lower trust amongst younger people is a reflection of the fact that there's a lot of critical theory going on, I believe, actually at all levels of society now. I believe it started decently 
you know, quickly at universities, but I think entertainment is full of critical theory. Now, if you watch a movie, it's going to be hard to watch without getting some let's fight the man message out of it. And the man is, you know, can be religious or political or, you know, as long as it's some prevailing institution, then it can be the enemy pretty easily like greedy business leaders, greedy politicians. And by the way, some of this might be a reflection of reality, but the point is that I don't think that, you know, religious institutions, for example, have gotten less trustworthy. The Catholic church had this big scandal where there was, you know, molestation claims and, you know, the church was moving around priests and things like that. But I don't think any of that's actually very new. I think what's new about it and, and what people are, are getting is now that they they're getting the information because there are people in society who are interested in making sure that these institutions look bad. And so, for example, public schools have a bigger problem with child abuse by the numbers than the Catholic Church does, but you don't hear that story very often. I think that's because critical, critical theorists tend to dislike religious institutions like the Catholic Church more than they dislike institutions like public schools, which, by the way, those public school principals the trust is falling amongst them too, but it's still like 75%, which is pretty high. I couldn't, I'll just make one little comment with business leaders. And I wonder what the poll, I don't know if you've, how closely you've read it, that does that mean, do they phrase it that look, this could be local business leaders like here in Ottawa, Kansas, or is it, are we immediately thinking of Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, you know, the Fortune 500 yeah, type business leaders? I think leaders? they're just described as business leaders. Okay. Because I think that is a, a little bit of a hint of cronyism, right? The politicians are down, the business leaders are down, and the, the idea of cronyism is that those two play kissy face with each other and we fall distrustful of big government and big business playing too closely with each other. So that would be reflective, I guess, in that result. Too. Yeah, unfortunately, like institutions that are like certainly more kissy face, like the military, which is literally a branch of literally, the government, yeah. it has, by the way, much lower trust, 69% compared to people 50 and above who's now who are 91%. So trust has fallen a lot in the military, but it's still way higher than business leaders, almost double. Well, Nate, what's your view of trust as a freshman versus where you're at today as a graduate? What I was just thinking while we're talking is just the decrease in trust from youth. I think a lot of it from my friends and my perspective is social media, I think, from the Twitter and, and people going on that. And I think the decrease in police trust and politics trust, like we only see the bad news on Twitter. Like uh, when the police brutality was happening, all we saw was the bad stories, the bad news, so people's trust in general, like when you go on social media, that, that might be where some people get all their news or all their ideas from is, is Twitter, because that's what a lot of my friends just use. That's all they use. So then your trust goes down and politician politicians' trust is going down as well, because that's all we see is the negative things, either when Trump was in presidency. And even if you voted for Biden, people, I saw my friends tweeting like, hey, where's my stimulus check? Hey, you promised all this stuff, <laughs> like Biden promised all this stuff. And like, what's happening? Nothing's happened, right? And so we just see these stories and then I think trust just is a negative factor. And then here going to Ottawa University, my personal example is I've learned that you shouldn't trust the government as much as you think you should. So I like this idea that, that you brought up social media too, because if, so if my thesis is correct, which uh, I think because it's mine, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I knew that was coming. Yeah. Um, well, uh, if you have, as I said, these two parties that are getting further and further apart, what you are apt to hear on social media is not a reflection of how far apart these parties are. It's a absolute magnification of that by, uh, you know, uh, 
an exponential degree. So if you go on left Twitter or right Twitter, you aren't going to find, you know, the central planks of the party's uh, responses. And so the divide on social media is much wider than the divide even on the parties is. And that divide is wider than it used to be. And so many people are only getting their information from those sources. I mean, all the way through, you know, even the early 80s, um, there were, you know, very, you know, everybody was, for the most part, getting the same news, right? You know, think about how long it took for the Zabruder film to even see the light of day after Kennedy's head exploded in broad daylight. If the Kennedy assassination happened today, you would have conspiracy theories immediately, right? So, yeah, I've... I also think that definitely social media and the rise of social media feeds into it as, and especially as our journalistic, our, our journalists and our media continues to openly step on rakes and shoot themselves in the face. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the, I think the two events, uh, the one that we did with the social dilemma movie uh, listeners, if you haven't watched that, it's, it's worth watching just to see how Twitter and Facebook and, all of that stuff has really steered your direction just because they're motivated by you keeping your eyeballs on their platform for advertising purposes. Today, this afternoon, we're going to have our second meeting related to Urbit, which we've had a few podcasts on that maybe would be some alternatives to how we communicate with each other that would be maybe free from um, issues that surround Facebook and Twitter like that. So any last words here today? Yeah. So as a last word, I would say, I know that what I said sounds kind of like depressing or that, you know, there's a bad future ahead or or whatever, but actually have a think that this could bode pretty well for religious institutions because, um, you know, the kinds of messages that you are inclined to hear when you go to church aren't these extremely divisive hate your neighbor and hate the people on the other side of the political spectrum. Yeah. So insofar as, you know, the voices that you hear on social media get crazier and crazier and things get more and more divisive politically, I think people will be looking for institutions that allow them to live in harmony with people that they disagree with. And I think that is one thing that religious institutions, uh, for the most part, do a pretty good job of. You know, the core message being something like, hey, love, love your neighbor. You should break bread with people you disagree with, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so the worse things get online, the more attractive these historically based institutions appear to me. So, yeah. All right. Well said. Well, this, this has been enlightening. You know, this is what we talk about with the Gorton Institute is institutions. And so I think today was a good fairing out of that. So on behalf of the Gorton Institute here at Ottawa University, I'd like to thank you all for listening And a five-star rating helps other people find our information. And we also have a little donate button on the Gorton Institute website. So if you feel so inclined, that'd be great. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.